This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode is all about content marketing. Our guest is Joe Polizzi. Joe is the godfather of content marketing. He founded the Content Marketing Institute in 2007, and he is also credited with coining the phrase content marketing. Joe is also a co-founder of the Orange Effect Foundation. And if you're interested in hearing more from Joe, you can find his content at joepolizzi.com or you can follow him on Twitter at joepolizzi. Polizzi spelled P-U-L-I-Z-Z-I. So without further ado, here is our Marketing Trends interview with Joe Polizzi. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. Coming in from Cleveland, Ohio. Joe, what's going on? Ian, <laughs> how you doing, man? It's, uh, it's starting to warm up in Cleveland, so I'm... So things are better because I, I, it's been so cold. I've been threatening to leave the city. The orange man himself. Um, I, I'm so thrilled to do this, uh, to do this interview and get, get to be able to talk to you. I was a huge fan of this old marketing. I'm still a huge fan. You know, all the content is still out there. So for our listeners who have never checked it out, it's a podcast that, that Joe and, and Robert did for years that is phenomenally done. I'd love to start out today could you give me a rant like what do you what do you need to what do you need a little rant on oh i i I can go rants all day you know what i'm ranting on right now is the fact that wherever i see people so when we if we go to let's say a show play uh, in cleveland there's a great area called playhouse square where you can see musicals and you know shows that were on broadway and the thing that i see that bothers me is an intermission everyone gets out their phone nobody talks to each other Everyone just gets out their phones. It's starting to really bother me, and I and I never quite noticed it until I took my sabbatical last year. In the first thirty days, I did uh, thirty days no electronics, and because I forced myself, I couldn't pull out my phone anytime. I just watch people, and it is just we have lost the art of communicating with other people, and I <laughs> just start it's starting to bother me, man. I don't know what to do about I'm it. I'm with you. You know, I find what's tough is that so because your work is now on your phone yeah. and your life is on your phone and your connection to all of your friends and your family is on your phone that I just find my left hand going to my pocket all the time. It's like if there's a dull moment, I just feel my left hand going to my pocket, right? Because that's where my phone is. So I'm right there with you. It's, it's, the, it's the addiction of our age. We had a, not that drugs isn't still a problem and everyone knows some of the opioid stuff that's going on. But if you look at right now in the 2010s and beyond, the addiction that is the most prevalent problem right now is addiction to electronic devices, specifically the smartphone. And I, I think it's going to cause all kinds of problems, but you know, but I'm an optimist. So. <laughs> So we'll see. I I am too, and I think that I think that for every every problem that it that it solves, I mean, I, I think you know 
and this ties in really well to marketing because what we want to talk to you about today and what we are so focused on with this idea of content marketing that, you know, you really coined with the creation of, of the Content Marketing Institute, or I think at least brought it to popularity, um, is this idea of not wasting people's time. It's not interrupting them. It's not interjecting yourself into whatever it is that they're consuming in a way that I think has got way beyond we ever, like way beyond what we ever thought. Uh, we took a lot of the same things that we used to do in magazines and newspapers and TV, and we just drag and dropped it onto digital. Why did you kind of like think about this idea of, of content marketing early in your career? And, and why did you think it was so important to, to uh, popularize? Well, I, I totally, first of all, I totally lucked into the industry. I mean, I was working internal communications at an insurance company in Cleveland, Ohio. And because of my really my data, my access, Microsoft access database experience, I was, uh, was trying to get a job for Penton media for, for Penton's custom publishing division to do a side project. They didn't use me for that side project, but then an account manager position opened. They said, Hey, we really like Joe in the interview. Let's, let's go see if he wants this account manager job. So I left insurance and I started working as an account manager over the custom publishing group at Penton. So Penton media, large, Business to business media company, uh, at that time, they're about 300, 350 million dollars. And the division that I came into was basically doing custom magazines, print magazines and print newsletters for large business to business companies. So I, you know, I fell into this industry. And as I started to learn more about, so 2001, two, three, so saw the, uh, the, the birth of Google and Facebook and Twitter. And the ability for companies to go direct and not have to go through media companies like pet media anymore. And at the same time, I had this weird, this weird outlook on, Oh, well, we are the media. I work for a company called Pentamedia. We do magazines and events and all the traditional media stuff you'd think. But at the same time, I'm trying to work with Microsoft and Parker Hannifin and other companies like that to help them communicate directly to their audience and actually build an audience. And at that, and, and then as Google came around and Facebook and Twitter, like oh, these people are really going to have to get a handle on their story because of all these new avenues. And, you know, we've seen this, this democratic way that people just could create content and blogs and, and all this stuff was happening at one time. And I just this is about 2005. I said, Oh my gosh, this thing's going to be huge. So nobody's talking about it now, but this is going to be the thing. And in 10 years is what everybody's going to be talking about. And of course, at the time it was called custom publishing or custom media. And I was in charge. I had to sell this thing. So I was going out and I was selling it to chief marketing officers. And I'd say, you know, what's your custom publishing like? Or are you doing any custom publishing? And they're already sleeping. I mean, nobody wants to do custom publishing. Incredibly boring. Nobody wants to talk about custom media. Nobody wants to talk about branded content. But what I, I started to throw out the term content marketing just because as you know, and as most marketers know, if, if you don't call something marketing, marketers don't listen to it. Search marketing, direct marketing, print marketing, everything's marketing, right? SEO marketing. So I'm like, well, let's just call it content marketing because it's sort of what it is. And as soon as I started using that term, CMO starts, started to, you know, scooch up in their chair and pay attention to me. And we started selling more stuff. And I said, Oh my gosh, this could be a thing. So that means, so, so when I left 
Penton to start what became the Content Marketing Institute, I basically just put the flag in the ground and said, I don't care what y'all been talk, calling it before. We're calling it content marketing now. So that was April 2nd, 2007, where that uh, blog post came out. And I never referred to it again, that it w- wasn't a thing. And from that moment on, the whole industry that had been talking about, you know, custom publishing industry that's been going on for hundreds of years, I just said, we're not calling it that anymore. We're calling it content marketing. And, and thankfully, you know, people like Brian Clark and other influencers got behind it. And about 2009, 2010, it sort of became the term. Well, it's a brilliant look at category creation uh, as well, which we talk a lot about on the show and how I think a lot of times marketers think that all the secrets have been discovered, but in reality, like there's constantly new categories created as technology evolves. And, you know, as you've talked about it in your writing uh, and we've talked about on this show is that technology changes so fast, but marketing over the last decade has actually changed faster. It's, there's, it's more complex than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. You wrote Killing Marketing, uh, which I highly recommend for all of our listeners. If you haven't read it, go get it uh, on, uh, on Kindle or, or or hard copy. I didn't, do you get more money on the hard copy? What should people buy? <laughs> oh, you wanted the, the <laughs> well, I should, I shouldn't say this because I love McGraw Hill, my publisher, but the best uh, is audio. So go get the audio book. <laughs> Absolutely. Go get the audio book. Uh, I haven't listened to audio book, but I, I now, now I'll go get it. Yeah. Robert, Robert Rose and I did the audio book together uh, and uh, we had some fun with it. So how, how long did it take you? Uh, it took us about, I think the audiobook itself is about eight hours and it took us about 11 in the studio and we knocked it out one day. Wow. Yeah. It included some, included a lunch period for us. And we just, I mean, we had a, we had, you know, a great um, editor that worked on it and cut out all the ums and mistakes we made, but you know, it wasn't our first rodeo. So knock that bad boy out. No, I know. It's funny. We, uh, we do a lot of that stuff at mission.org with a lot of the, the audio that we do, which is, uh, you need really, really good writing. And then, uh, then the actual voiceover work is not quite as tough. But so, so you wrote this book, Killing Marketing, mm-hmm. which is your latest. You've written five, right? Five. You're right. Thank you. Yep. My goodness. Um, so you've written five books. Latest is Killing Marketing. And I just kind of wanted to go through some of the key points of this book. You know, the tagline, how innovative businesses are turning costs into profit, I think is a fascinating idea to talk about. But I think a lot of people just kind of say, but like, but how, like how, yeah, we hear that, but like how to do that. And you use some really brilliant examples like um, the Star Wars example. Can you kind of share that and the impetus for writing this book? The Star Wars example, I love the whole idea of what George Lucas did. So if you go back and there was a point where Star Wars was way over budget and the folks at Fox were really concerned about whether this thing was even going to make it. They didn't think the movie was going to do any good at all. And they still owed George Lucas a million dollars. And they said, they went to George Lucas and they said, uh, look, we don't want to pay you this million dollars. Can we work this down? Can we negotiate this some way? And George Lucas says, sure, you don't have to pay me at all. I want 100% merchandising rights for Star Wars. And at the time, how, you know, how was money made in the movie business by people going to the movies, buying tickets? That was it. That was the only way that was, you know, made money off the whole thing. And so, so the folks at Fox said, sure. You know, they were laughing all the way to the bank because they said, we don't have to pay this guy a million dollars now. And all he wants is merchandising rights. This is going to, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. 
Of course, we know now that Star Wars, one of the, if not the biggest movie franchise of all time. And I think the stats that I had last were from 2015. So I think it was right before the sale to Disney. And ticket sales of all the movies from 1977 to 2015 were something like $5.4 billion. And the merchandising sales, all the action figures and everything else that you can read, those sheets that I used to have on my bed and everything like that, that accounted for over $12 billion in sales. And guess who got all the money from that? <laughs> Mr. George Lucas. So the point that we're trying to make, and we talk about this a lot in Killing Marketing, is you have to look at things a little bit differently. They're right in front of you. And George Lucas did. He said, this is the way things are changing. Things are moving. You don't necessarily have to monetize an audience one way. And so I like to talk about the idea where the the way that we go to market for our marketing of our products and services and the way media companies go to market, it's exactly the same thing today. The difference is they're monetized differently. But if you think about, you know, if you're, a marketing executive today, let's just you know take a company like a HubSpot or something like that. Well, how much, or even better, bigger company, Salesforce. Look at a Salesforce who has a an event called Dreamforce that they could sell in and of itself right now for probably a billion dollars or more. Just the event. But nobody thinks about that. So they've created this thing. And of course, it's a marketing initiative, but in itself has value. And they sell multi-million dollar sponsors and they sell millions of dollars in tickets and all those things when that's possible for any company. And once you build an audience, you can do those kinds of things. And I think sometimes we forget that. So the goal with killing marketing is just to tell people that it's all there in front of you. You're doing a lot of this stuff already, but you're not thinking of all the opportunities. If you just give to that community and give and give and give and build that audience and you're open to other revenue opportunities than just selling the products and services you have. You know, the the Salesforce thing is is a great example. And obviously, you know, shout out to our friends at Pardot who, who sponsor the podcast, but uh, no, so we work with Salesforce. Salesforce uh, is the exclusive sponsor of four of our podcasts and not just because we work with them, you know, four or five times over actually is they're so smart about the way they think about community building and the way they think about this stuff um, and why they would partner with like a company like ours. But it really is interesting how Mark Benioff, first and foremost, is a marketer. Nobody ever refers to him as that. Nobody ever talks oh, yeah. about that. He's a great marketer. He is, he is one of the best marketers of all time. I mean, he's, you know, he is very Steve Jobsian in, in in the way that he has marketed Salesforce from the very beginning. And that that Dreamforce thing, you know, Lauren Vaccarello, who's who's my co-host, she was there pretty early on working on a lot of those earlier Dreamforces. And it was craziness behind the scenes. And that's the thing that we kind of always forget as marketers, I think, is it's always craziness on all these campaigns and all this stuff that we're doing. But if you have the foresight to say, what does this look like in 10 years, you can do something great. And, and I'll give another example. The Lego movie, which is the modern version of the Star Wars thing, the Lego movie budget was around 65 million. So Lego is like, hey, we're going we're gonna to put 65 million bucks into this. It made 469 million worldwide. 
and it boosted their sales by 25%. It made a profit of $229 million. And the thing that is so interesting about this, they're rolling out Lego Movie 2. They now have a franchise that is going to go forever. You talk a lot about building an audience and having that super long-term approach, um, that 18-month minimum timeline. Why is that so important? It, it takes time to, to build an audience trust so they, they know and like you, begin to trust you, begin to rely on you on a regular basis. This stuff doesn't happen overnight. Maybe in some very rare occasions you can strike lightning in a bottle and everyone's going to love this thing you're doing. But it, But human behavior doesn't work that way when it comes to media. It takes consistency of delivery over and over again of something truly valuable to get somebody's behavior to turn. So that's why it takes a long time. And if you look at the great media companies of our time, whether you're looking at, um, you know, New York Times or the Washington Post, and then you're getting into NBC and all those things, it took consistent delivery in one platform, in one platform over a long period of time to make that happen. And if you are a regular marketer who focuses on campaigns, and I've I know you have, and I've dealt with the same kind of people where you go in and they want to do a content marketing initiative and they say, uh, this campaign we're thinking about doing nine months or so. And I say, well, I'm out of here because if you're going to stop this after nine, you're going to, you're going to invest all this into this building, this community and then stop and do something else. Well, that's just the worst thing in the world you could do to a group of people. Like why, why even start it in the first place? So we talk about this all the time. We, we get approached a lot to do eight episode pilots and things like that. And it depends on the type of content for sure. But we get, we get approached a lot, of, a lot to do stuff like that. The thing is what, what people don't necessarily understand, they don't think like the audience. And if you're like the consumers are so smart now, people who consume media are so smart now that we know that we don't want to be part of something that goes away. So I'm not going to invest any time in a show that I can't like make it part of my life. Like there's a reason why like all of these anthology series are so hot right now is because I know that if I watch Black Mirror, I'm going to get consistency, even though the episodes are different. I know that this thing or you know whatever type of content it is. Um, and you know, you've talked before about it takes 66 days to change a behavior for an individual person. Well, if at a minimum you're not talking about, we need to do something for 66 episodes. How are you going to drive any type of change in behavior? Yeah, you're not. It's, it's, it boggles my mind when I talk to companies and I, and I, and you know, it's going to come every time when somebody's having a problem with their content marketing initiative, their e-newsletter or their podcast or their blog or whatever it's always the same. It's always the same two things. It's either, well, you don't have a differentiated point of view that stands out as any kind of value versus what's out there. So that's the one thing. But the most critical one is always they don't deliver consistently over a long period of time. There's, I said, okay, well, how they're having troubles with their newsletter. Okay. Well, tell me about it. What is it a week? It's a weekly newsletter. Okay. When does it go out? It goes out every Friday. I said, well, tell me about your distribution schedule. Well, you know, we couldn't get it out this Friday. We got it out on Tuesday. Sometimes we don't, sometimes we're not consistent about it. You know, so how many, how many have gone out in the last uh, three months? Oh, we've gotten out about six. It's like, well, you're not a weekly newsletter then. <laughs> 
So you're setting these expectations and you're not delivering about them. But the one thing I wanted to check, you brought up the great point about Lego. And the one super interesting thing that a lot of people don't realize with that movie is they did not create the products first. They let the storytellers create the script for that using whatever they could come up with. And then once the movie was created, the the different uh, Lego sets and, and people and all that stuff afterward. So they created the products and services from it. They didn't say what most of us do say. Here's what we sell. Go create content. They said, what does this audience want to hear? What does this audience want to see? What does this audience want to experience? They put together that best case piece of content. And then from there, they drove revenue from it. And that was the best part about that whole thing. And that's why I think it's successful. Yeah, I mean, you look at the best story studios of all time, you look at the Pixars of the world, you look at these people, they craft this deep, rich narrative and these like characters and these four-sided films and all of this, or four-quadrant films, excuse me, like they want to appeal to this broad group of people. And then afterwards, you feel for these characters, you have a favorite character, you have, you know, you like them for different reasons, and then you buy the toy, right? Yep. Disney, same way, you know, like, oh, are you, do you identify more with Elsa or do you identify more with Olaf or, or whatever it is, or maybe all of them and you want to collect the whole set. But, and you know, it's different for toys, obviously, because kids buy toys and, you know, maybe they just want something that, that they can play with. But I would argue that for B2B marketers, there's a lot of parallels there as well. You've talked a lot about it you know, the two reasons why content marketing doesn't work that number one, the goal isn't big enough. And number two, you know, there's not that repetition there. When it comes to that goal setting, what do you advise companies that you work with? Well, the, the, the first thing is, is that you can't start with your own revenue goals. Now I know this goes contradictory to a lot of marketers are like, okay, what's the goal? What I like to start with is who's the audience And how can we deliver valuable experiences to that audience? And let's just think big picture. So that's what we really want to do. And when we really think about that audience, I want to go, I want to create a niche of a niche of a niche and get down to who we're really talking about. I actually had a meeting this morning talking to somebody that says they're, you know, they're targeting small businesses, uh, small business owners from five to a hundred people, hundred employees. And they were, very satisfied that that was the target niche. And I said, that's not bad. You know, you have a certain general area and you, you're, you're targeting leaders in these companies of a certain, but I said, is that, is that targeted enough where you could be the leading expert in the world on something if you created a content initiative? He's like, no, no, it's not. So who are we really talking about? And then we got into really discussions where we were talking about dentistry. And law firms and then getting into particular kinds of law firms. And that's what I'm talking about, where you can really, really get niche and deliver value over and above what anybody else is doing to that particular group of people that you can always get bigger. You can always expand out. But I want you to get really, really small and niche and become invaluable to that group and then go further from there. And I think that's what most people forget about. And really what we want to do is once we do that, then we're just we're just giving. You've, you've got to, and this is why it's so hard for big enterprise organizations to, to do content marketing well, because I'm always like, don't, don't, don't try to get a lead. Don't try to sell right now. All we're doing is we're going to build a relationship. It's all we're doing. So let's just 
hold on for a little bit. And then once we build that relationship, then you can start to, to tell them about some of the products and services. But honestly, it should happen naturally. You don't, you're not going to need to tell a lot of people that, Oh, you need to buy this right now because if they know, like, and trust you, they'll start looking for themselves when they have the problem. Well, and also, you know, you look at some of the people who are the best at doing ad reads. The reason why they're so good at it is because they are informing their audience of new products. So it's actually part of the, part of the like novel like appeal of some of those ad reads is that if it's genuine, they're like, Hey, I use this thing. Like I, you know, I know uh, one of the famous ones is like Ferris, Tim Ferris uses like four sigmatic mushrooms. Right. Of like, he's like, I love this stuff. I use like half a cup of this stuff and it like I'm flying high or whatever stuff like that. We're like, man, that's such an authentic experience that it's like, no wonder that kind of thing works. And that's more of an ad, but, mm-hmm. but at least you're creating some type of connection around it rather than just like, this is, you know, purely shoving an in inventory. You know, we, th- this idea of distribution um, versus like content creation, which kind of, I feel like are at, are at a little odds right now. You have said that you believe that distribution has been democratized, not the creation of content. Why, why do you think that? Anybody who wants to get access to an audience can build one today and distribute that content today easier, more efficient, and more inexpensive than at any time in history. I mean, when I started in media and publishing, when we used to say, okay, we need to get a certain amount of magazine subscribers to opt into this publication, it generally costs us between three and nine dollars per name. To do that, you know, send the direct mailers. We had people calling them and we had to do that to get our publishers statements and audits out. And that's just the way it was. Well, it's not the, that way anymore. If you create, first thing, if you create something that is truly valuable and you reach your core audience immediately, that core audience will help spread that message because they are their own publishers as well. And the other thing is once you have something that's truly amazing, then when you kick in your advertising and your paid sponsorship to support those things, it is a heck of a lot easier to grow that newsletter list or those podcast subscribers or whatever else you got. So I think that anybody can distribute like a New York Times today. And you really don't need a lot of money to do it. But how many people are going to put that organization together like the New York Times and create that kind of journalistic quality? And very few are going to make that investment. So that's kind of where I see it. Yeah, and that, and build that brand trust. You know, so it's something we, we talk about a lot and like we believe at Mission is, is like writers are our version of engineers, right? Like writers are the best engineer is so valuable. Well, the best writer is, is so valuable. Otherwise, you know, if, if like JK Rowling wasn't such a brilliant writer, there would be tons of Harry Potter books out, right? Like there's be a lots of replicants, but there's, there's really not. Right. I think that like the people that are creating this content, which is I think an exciting time, despite a lot of, you know, the layoffs, which is super upsetting, but to be a writer, because you can be found easier if you're really good. And I think that those really good writers, the thing that separates the best content creators and way to be empathetic with your audience and all that stuff, it's an empowering time. Like what a great time to be alive mm-hmm. because you can actually create this stuff. You don't need a, you don't need an agent. You don't need a you know, publisher. You don't need a lot of that sort of stuff, but you can be found and you can create great work. 
Well, that's where you need the the writers of the world, the content creators of the world that traditionally created content for a media property. You just have to change your perspective a little bit and realize that you could create the content yourself because creating the distribution arm is rather easy to do. Put up a website, blog, create a podcast. Those, I mean, podcasts almost cost you no money to start. <laughs> it's not It's not that difficult to do these things. But you just have to get used to doing them because they probably grew up in the area where, oh, we have to, you know, we have to send our pitch to this magazine or this, uh, this television station or whatever. When today you, you don't have to do that. Now, there's still probably positives for working through traditional channels. It's no problem at all to do that. Maybe there are more because there's a lot of people going direct, but that's where I, when I re- when I talk to writers and they're, they're like, oh, I, I was working for this company or this publishing company and I got laid off or I don't have any opportunities there. They're not paying me enough. And I'm like, you know, maybe now's the time. Maybe you take that risk and start creating your own audience. And once you create your own audience, you can monetize it 10 different ways. It's just, that's the thing they think is overwhelming because they, when, when I, when I look at what's more difficult, writing is more difficult than creating the business model. That's much easier to do. Some people might disagree. But I think that's the easy part, actually creating the content that's amazing. That's the harder part. 100%. Our producer, Ben, for this show, so shout out Ben, uh, who's listening out there. He created a podcast and applied to one of our jobs by saying like, hey, I created this thing. And then we hired him. Like, had no experience creating podcasts before, but just like did it. And that's what got him hired, right? Like, I love that. That's it. Well, I, I had a, um, I, get e- I get emails about probably about once or twice a week from students. And they'll they'll say, Mr. Polizzi, you know, read your book, or we we used your we used Epic Content Marketing for our textbook in class. And I just wanted to reach out. I said, I want to go into content marketing. What's your one piece of advice? It's always the same thing. As I always say, go build an audience. I don't care what it's around. I don't care if you photograph butterflies or you like to uh, live stream uh, NBA 2K on your on your Xbox and you want to promote it on Twitch or YouTube, I don't care what it is. It doesn't matter. If you can go and create consistent content and actually build an audience, let's say through an email newsletter of some kind or through subscribers, all you really have to do on your marketing interview is go to them and say, ah, yeah, I I put a whole media channel together and built this audience of 10,000 people. They'll hire you in a second. (laughs) It's, It's So it's just so... And I know a lot of people out there are doing it, which is fantastic. And I love all the YouTubers and I love seeing all this stuff happen uh, because they, but what, what probably happens in a lot of cases is they build up these channels and then they become so valuable. They're like, well, they're like PewDiePie, right? It's like, Hey, I'm going to do this rest of my life. I can do whatever I want. I'm a millionaire now. I don't have to worry about getting a job for somebody. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great, it's a great lesson. And I think that that's the thing that a lot of people forget is, a lot of the most famous writers or famous authors or creators did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things before, you know, that one thing broke through, right? It was, you know, it's, it's pretty classic Pareto principle stuff too, where it's like 80% of your stuff that you create is probably going to be not as good and 20% is going to be your best stuff. But generally speaking, like 
you know, those things that actually do break through that get you found are things that you can go and say like, Hey, I created this whole channel. This is the best episode. This is why people like it. And and then there's your, uh, it's better than a resume. That's for sure. Well, and, and then it really is a marathon and not a sprint. Again, that's why you're seeing a lot more success and examples on the individual side because they started as a hobby or a passion project and they keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And then you're over at the enterprise level as a marketer, content marketer, and you're going nine months and there's nobody's been to the blog or nobody's, and you, you really, and you're like, Oh my God, I, I'm going to get fired. I mean, if, if we looked at contentmarketinginstitute.com in, as we started this whole idea and I looked at the first nine months, we hardly had anybody going to that site. It was no, we weren't getting any traction at all. Two and a half, you know, once we hit the two and a half year mark, then things started to work and really started to, and we had the patience and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, got over all the headaches and the credit card problems and everything to, to kind of stick through that and to wait long enough. And that's what a lot of people aren't. Now, if you add some sponsorship and some ads to it and promotion and work social media properly, you can, you can cut a lot of that time down, but still the best, you know, I've, I've, I've only seen, maybe you can get the nine months, 10 months, 11 months. It still takes time. So I want to, the, the, the last chapter in your book is about like, are we wrong? Like, are we, are we just like screaming into the wind? And I don't know if you, if you feel that way at all ever of like, man, I've been doing this for a long time and I kind of feel like a lot of people are getting it. Content marketing world is great. Uh, we have an awesome content. We, uh, or an awesome conference and there's a lot of people that are starting to get it, but there's still so many people who are doing things the old way. Describe this idea, this thought process that, that you both went through, uh, you and Robert, to say like, hey, are we wrong? And, and kind of straw man things. Yeah, I mean, I think we had to ask the honest question and Robert and I talked about it and said, we could actually be wrong. And we don't think we're wrong, but we could actually be wrong. But then you come back to the whole idea if you really focus on the needs of your customers and you really try to create valuable experience for, for them through as many different channels that make sense, then I, it's almost like, then I don't want to be right because I don't think there's any other way to communicate with people. Um, I was, I've been working on this little side project here for a while, just about the, the servant nature of real marketing today. And the idea of, you know, if we, you go back to the origins of the word marketing and, and way back 2000 years ago, it was all about, you know, people buying things. Everything was people buying. You might even say, okay, well, that's my definition anyways. But what a lot of people think about is marketing and sales is all about selling things. And we got into that rut years ago, probably when we got into the, you know, 30 second spot. Uh, starting in the you know 50s, 60s, 70s, and on, where we were just selling stuff and selling and selling. And you've got whole entire marketing departments out there that are just focused on selling stuff. And I believe that is wrong and that is holding us back. Because what we ultimately want to do is we want to make it easy for people to buy. And we want to focus on that and not on what we sell. And if you focus on just trying to deliver positive experiences that revolve around your let's say, uh, your core set of expertise levels, if you will, then you'll, you'll never go wrong. And the best part is you'll open up opportunities to sell all kinds of stuff. And you want the greatest example in the world right now, it's Amazon. 
I mean, Amazon is all about focusing on the needs of the customers selling books, right? It's just books. It's a bookstore. It's an online bookstore. Well, now they're, I think, the second largest company in the world. I mean, they're pretty close. First or second. They're going back and forth with Apple by market cap. But it's that focus on the needs of the customers and not necessarily, I have to sell them this. So if anybody gets anything out of listening to me ramble about this stuff, I would say take a look at your marketing and does all, do all your goals and all your focus with your communications, are they set up with a minimum amount of stuff that you have to sell? Or is it about looking at the behavior of your customers that ultimately open up opportunities for them to buy? It's not the same thing. It's very different. Do you think that the over-reliance on metrics is something that, and I know like, you know, probably a lot of our listeners will roll their eyes about, about the metrics stuff. Like, well, we have to track this stuff. Like we have to figure out a way. How have you seen like best practices to track content marketing to ensure that it's working? Are there, you know, qualitative and quantitative things? I know like one thing that we, we really look at a lot is, uh, is like impact statements from listeners you know, we get really cool fan mail and stuff, which is, which is super humbling, but like, Hey, you know, I listened to this episode of the story and it changed my outlook on failure. Thanks so much for doing what you're doing. Like really cool stuff like that. And you look at those type of statements and you're like, that's if you're changing someone's like trajectory of life or like, Hey, I had the courage to apply to be an army nurse. There's one that we got, like, man, that's, that's so impactful that you know that you're doing something. You can't just say, oh, that's a, we don't have a scoring metric for that per se, although maybe we should develop it. Like how have you seen some of those best practices with metrics and how you track? Well, the prop, first of all, there's, I love all the statistics and metrics we can have today, but there's, they get so overwhelming because you can have a metric for almost anything. When we were growing contentmarketinginstitute.com, everyone that was a part of the company knew that the goal of the website was to attract or and or keep a subscriber. That's it. The goal was not to sell more stuff. The goal was not to create a better brand. The goal was not anything. It's only to attract and keep subscribers. So that's the only thing we looked at. We wanted to know how many subscribers did we have and were they regularly reading this thing and how much were they reading? That's all I want to know. Because if I have that outside of, you're right, all the qualitative information that's out there, which is wonderful that we love to send around to the team. But if I see more people signing up, more people opening, and people reading week after week after week, we know we're making an impact. And when that starts to drop off, we've got a problem. And maybe I'm short-sighted or maybe there's other things to look at, but I wanted to keep it super simple for the team because if we just looked at those things, we knew exactly what we needed to do. And we didn't have to overcomplicate the matter. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a really interesting show that I subscribed to for a long time that the host would talk about, like, my main goal is for you to stop listening to this show because you've, you've figured out all the stuff and you go on. And I always thought that was an interesting. That's nice. I like that. Yeah. It was like, it's like, hopefully you never listen to this, but you just remember that, like, I helped you on your journey sort of thing. Yeah. The only problem is just tough to monetize. (laughs) <laughs> when they keep dropping off, they're like, we're helping a lot of people, but I got three listeners now because we've helped them all. So you just got, as long as you're turning out, turning a lot of people to you. That's the thing, right? It's like, that might be a goal of yours is to like be one step in their journey, but then how do you continue to 
to be a utility for people. And I think that a lot of times people just don't think of like the utility that they're being for people. Like for example, for, for Content Marketing Institute, we're huge fans. We're actually uh, an advertiser in CMI now, which is fun. But I think what's really interesting too is that I know I personally go back and when I do like chunk work to go study about things, I'll go to Content Marketing Institute and I'll go absorb like 10 or 15 articles in like a day, take a bunch of notes when we're doing like planning or prep sessions or things like that. That's kind of how I, I do my studying and my, my stuff. Whereas it's not necessarily like a every single day, you know, reading different types of newsletters of all the different things. Sure. Because it, there's a lot of content overwhelm at this point. Marketers looking at the utility of the content that they're providing and being right place, right time for those folks is so important. Like you don't want to, a morning newsletter shouldn't be 45 minutes long to read because most people aren't reading it in the morning for 45 minutes. But there are newsletters, like we published an article in time that was 63 minutes long. We had like 1,100 people read this article. Most people would be like, man, I don't want to read that. But some people do want to read that. So I think that there's a lot of right place, right time stuff. And that impacts what metric you are doing or you're, you are using to track it. Not just like, hey, we have one wand that metric that does every single thing for everybody. Well, I mean, on that, yeah, you're exactly right. And one thing that we we learned this after the fact, we didn't predict it or anything, but we started to look at, okay, we who are the best buyers of stuff at CMI? And we said, okay, um, here's a whole group of people here that spend X amount per year on our training, on paid subscription, on content marketing world, whatever the case is. And then we said, okay, well, what do these people have in common? And what we found out was is that, that those people engage in at least three different content initiatives that we offer. So then you go back and you deconstruct and you say, okay, well, that means if that's true and they all get to three, then we've got to move the one and the twos to three. So we get the one subscribers to the newsletter. How do we get the subscribers to the newsletter to sign up for the magazine? How do we get the people to sign up for the magazine to sign up for the podcast so that we can, in different forms, in different ways, and for different needs and pain points, communicate with them a different way? I mean, that's why the books were the books were created for a very particular type of person that needed something in bulk like that. Um, the same thing for the training, which were, were really for people that are new to content marketing and they need it all at once. And their managers are saying, you got to You got to get this. What do we do? OK, great. We've got it all packed into one done. So that's the thing is once you build the one channel and you start creating an audience, significant amount of audience, then you can start to look and diversify in that and build other things and fill in those gaps to create a truly valuable experience throughout different uh, parts of the journey for these, for the customers you're targeting. I wanted to touch on scale for a second. Everybody chases scale. There's good podcast called masters of scale. Uh, scale is definitely a hot button word that, uh, has kind of come into the vernacular a lot more recently here. When we talk about this idea of like inventory based scale, which you can just purchase, you can use uh, social media, you can use a bunch of different ways to achieve scale for, you know, in a targeted kind of way. Um, but at the end of the day, you are always paying for that scale. You can never like those ads will never automatically just spike one day and you, you get a million hits on, on one ad that you did because ultimately you're going to pay per click or per impression or per thousand or whatever, whatever you're paying for. How have you seen content as the only way to scale? 
I don't know if it is the only way to scale. Um, you might even know better than that. If you believe it's the only way to scale, great. All I'm worried about is delivering the content to the right people when they need it. Uh, I've never gotten involved in that whole conversation. Mark, actually, Robert does a better job of thinking about scale and total addressable audience and how many and how do we get big and whatever. And I don't know if we necessarily have to. I don't know if do we have to worry about that and go and take that and look at it as a big enterprise would and we have to go. Sometimes small works. Sometimes you don't have to be efficient in your content processes. And that's what I love about it is it could be anything to anybody. Uh, and that's why you can have, that's why sometimes you get the one person, a solopreneur in their home office that is doing a little bit of everything that can do it better than a enterprise with all the resources in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point. And I mean, you know, we, we talked to like, if you're trying to sell into, you know, COOs of fortune 500 companies, right? Like there's only 500. So you really don't, there's no amount of scale that you ever need to achieve. And we've talked to some really smart folks about ABM strategies and we have a bunch more content coming down the pipeline for ABM strategies specifically, you know, obviously around, around B2B. But I think that that is, it is one of the misnomers that there's a certain amount of scale that you need. So when you do have, you know, let's say it's a 500 person, you know, target market, for example, and then, you know, maybe you include all of the, the folks that are in there in those accounts that you want to, you know, reach and all that stuff. So let's just say 20,000 people, then it's automatically a number of, well, you can't reach these people. That number is never getting bigger potentially. So how do you reach them in a more deep way? What is the deeper connections that you can make? What are the, what are the next step? What is, you know, there's no traffic on the extra mile sort of thing. Like what is the extra mile that you can go for these people? And I think that that's where the best content can really be those niches and those segments and those sort of things. And it can really have a true impact on like what that individualized person is going through. Have you seen like any best practices for like how to individualize content for people? I haven't seen a lot from an individual. I mean, the, the the I've seen a lot of variable. I've seen the what um, I mean. The the great example is what Yahoo Sports does with their automatic, where they can you know pull from the database depending on who you are for uh, for what you did from fantasy football the week before, and you get this personalized thing of exactly what you did. And I think it's amazing because it sounds like a human being wrote it. I mean, that's, I think the the automated copy and the automated writing and the automated content that is going to come our way is going to be, astound all of us and we're going to see it happen and it's already happening. So those types of things are going to happen, are happening. I get a little worried about it, <laughs> honestly, especially with some of the things that in the, at least depending on when you're listening to this, there's, everybody's talking about it on social media about the AI photo generator. Have you seen this? It'll generate a face that's never been existed before. And it's just creating this content on the fly, taking bits and pieces from people all over the world to do this thing. And you just like, Oh my gosh, this thing is happening. I don't know where we're going to be with the AI content creation specifically from that standpoint. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's the first thing that I thought of. And that those types of things coming down the road. Um, still be room for a lot of other content creators, but a lot of the stuff that your that writers did 
blocking and tackling where you have a writer that, um, you know, creates certain copy for here and there or bits and pieces. That's all going to be automated in the near future. Which is so exciting. I mean, I, I'm, <clears throat> I'm really bullish on, on AI just from the standpoint that like, man, I already, yeah, we've talked about this in a few different shows, but the Gmail, how it's finishing sentences now and things like that. I'm like, man, I was going to write that whole paragraph. You're totally right. And you got computers that can, that can create uh, individual works of music that would could compete with Mozart and things like that that people don't want to believe are happening that are absolutely happening. I mean, that's the thing that what makes. I mean, just think about art. You have to think about art differently. And if art is not created directly by a human, it's created by a computer. Is it art? I, I mean, I don't know. Yes, may I. <laughs> Yes, I think I'm. It is art, but I think people are going to have a tough time with this as they learn that the majority of information that they're getting is are coming from Alexa and Google Home and and then into everything else that we do. It's scary and exciting at the same time. I know you got to get out of here. So, like final final thing I want to talk about, and then we'll do like a super quick lightning round, fast questions. I just wanted to ask you about the Orange Effect Foundation and, and what you're doing and why you co-founded it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the, we've been working on this since Orange Effect Foundation, theorangeeffect.org, since 2007. We started a little golf outing, started raising money for kids who and families who couldn't afford speech therapy. My oldest child uh, was diagnosed on the autism spectrum. He had a very tough time talking when he was younger, could barely speak at three. We got an aggressive speech and play therapy, and it did wonders for him. He's in regular school now. He's doing fantastic. And as I've been um, more involved in this industry and talking to families who have kids with some kind of speech delay or development issue, some of them just can't afford it. And it's costly services, and sometimes insurance doesn't afford it. So we created Orange Effect Foundation, 501c3, 2014 officially. And now we have grants going out to 127 kids in 28 states that, you know, we could get them the speech therapy they need on a consistent basis so they could just learn to communicate. We're not trying to change them. All we want to do, all these kids want to do is communicate. They just want to communicate so people are going to understand them. And speech therapy, everybody's focused on in a lot of cases, the, okay, how do we solve autism and how do we solve these things and the research behind it? And that's all wonderful and should be done. But we've got a lot of people here with speech delays and development issues right now that need support and funds. So we're a hundred percent fundraising organization. We'll take any and all donations and all those donations go directly to providers of services uh, for the, for the grants that we offer. That's so cool. And it's a, it's a great reminder that something that I'm sure, you know, when you were, you know, going out on the golf links in 2007, probably couldn't imagine that, uh, you know, almost 15 years later or over a decade later is, is something that's probably impacted so many people. Well, yeah, here, the quick thing, the, the reason, here's what I learned. I learned that if a family is really having trouble making it and they can't put food on the table, they're going to go buy food before they pay for speech therapy. And who wouldn't, right? They're absolutely going to do that. And that's what happens. And these kids don't get the speech therapy and they go three, four, five, up to 11, 15, and they're having trouble communicating. And those things can be taught to them uh, while they're in the developmental cycle and really make a difference. Okay, last 
thing. We're going to do the lightning round. So we do fast and easy questions, just like our friends at Pardot. It's fast and easy. Sweet. Let's do it. What app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? Oh, I I use, I don't know if it's fun, but I use Habit Bull, B-U-L-L, all the time because I have about eight or nine habits that I do per day and I keep track of them on Habit Bull and it pings me if I haven't done them. Favorite one day getaway in the Cleveland area? Oh, in the Cleveland area. Oh, this is, uh, I, I would probably say Westside Market. Westside Market, one of the oldest markets in the United States. I think it's 1900 or something like that. And it takes you back in time and it's all small businesses, local, uh, you know, fresh uh, fish and meats and fruits and vegetables. And it's fantastic. And if you go to Cleveland, you got to go to Westside Market. What? Ad or content campaign have you said? And I know we don't like to say the campaign too much, <laughs> but what we'll, we'll say part of a larger part of a larger a larger initiative. But what what a campaign have you seen recently that you were envious of? Oh, I love that! I just I talked about it in the newsletter. Well, it's not really the campaign, but the blackberry pie. The oh no, I'm sorry. I always say blackberry raspberry pie. Raspberry pie. The the computer hardware manufacturer they just bought two more computer enthusiast magazines. I think they have six or seven now. And this is a, you know, a computer hardware company that has created a media company called um, Raspberry Pi Press that is just doing phenomenally well. And I think that any company should look at that example of what they're doing. Yeah, that was a great one. And by the way, your newsletter, where can people find that at? We'll link it up in the show notes. Yeah, if you go to, um, uh, actually, I'm putting it up uh, in the next couple of days. So hopefully it'll be up. JoePolizzi.com slash newsletter. So you go to JoePolizzi.com, P-U-L-I-Z-Z-I.com slash newsletter and sign up and I'll send it every couple of weeks. And uh, and I'm glad you like it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I, I really like the first one. Favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Oh, favorite book or podcast. Oh, you know what? This is an old one, but uh, I just read a book called The Go-Giver by Bob Bird and uh, John David Mann. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's sort of who moved, like who moved my cheese, if you remember that one. I re- it's, it took me about two hours to read. I really, really enjoyed it. And I think any marketer should read it and you really get an idea. And that's what the whole thing we're talking about, how marketing truly is all about giving. And a lot of people don't realize it in this book, sort of talks about it from that standpoint. Worst business advice you've ever gotten? Uh, worst business. Well, I didn't take it, thank God, but the, I got a lot of uh, work with VCs. You know, go get your venture capital money. <laughs> Terrible advice. Stay, stay away if you can. Once you give up control of any of your business at any time, it's never, ever a good thing. And you do it as a last resort only. Yeah, that's it's it's a we just did an episode on our podcast Mission Daily about uh, about invest investing week. We talked a lot about that. What thing are you most excited about for the future market? I think I'm most excited because marketers are more important than they have ever been before because marketing is so critical to everything we do in organizations as products and services become so similar in the marketplace. We've got to, the marketers are becoming more strategic, more important. And I think you're going to see the marketing role sitting at the executive table now because it's so critically important. And I'm, and I'm, I think you're going to see it being, uh, you know, like where, where you've got the importance of finance has always been there. I think you're going to see finance and marketing sit side by side and, uh, and not just as an expense anymore. I love it. 
Thanks so much, Joe. That's it. That's all we got. Awesome. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.